Hi, my name is George. I'm an alcoholic. Really glad to be here. Um, I was telling Elaine and Harry that once I'm in this about three hours, I start feeling more comfortable. I meant to say three minutes. <laughs> but I'm always, I'm always really scared when I start. And, um, and I think part of that is because I want to do well. I want to be able to express to you how much this program has changed my life, how much it's given me a life. I desperately want you to like me. That has never changed. That's always been the way. And so I'm fearful, and then I start thinking, why did I say yes? Why am I here? And I start, and then, it, then I feel angry, and then everything is just hard. And <laughs> but then I start hearing your stories, and, um, and then I'm, you know, I come in and I hear the music, you know, the laughter in the room, and all of a sudden I'm feeling all mushy, and Ellen tells me a story, and I'm crying, and... Elaine and Harry have been so lovely, and I have already in 24 hours too many people to thank. That's crazy, isn't it? In 24 hours, and um, and then and then the kids come in with the banner. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> you know, rock in a fetal position now because I was I, you know, I'm all, uh, and now. <laughs> but um, that's kind of in a nutshell what the program's done for me. Thank you. <laughs> Um, but I do want to thank the committee, and I especially want to thank Elaine and Harry for asking me to do this and being so wonderful these months, staying in touch, and it's been really nice, and um, it's been fun to get to know them and to see Ellen again, and again, I have, I have too many friends to mention Ken, um, <laughs> that, you know, that I love, and, um, and hostesses and hosts that have been so wonderful, and um I've never seen a place more beautiful, I don't think, so far, and uh, looking forward to the week. I always want to know a speaker's statistics, so I'll give you mine. Um, I got sober when I was 24. Uh, I have been sober 19 years, which makes me 44. And uh, I honestly never thought I would live this long. I never thought I would be this old. I, it doesn't feel old now, but when I was younger, it seemed really old. But um, I grew up with a, a group of friends, and our theme was Die Young, Stay Pretty. It was a song by Blondie. And that was our goal, to go out young and hot. And uh, I'm going to have to have a new goal, because I'm pushing the envelope quite a bit now. New dreams. But, um, yeah, um I don't remember when I had my first drink, but I was arrested for drinking in public when I was 11, and I was a daily drinker by the time I was 12. So I, I started really young. Um, with the advent of Facebook, I was going through some pictures of my dad to post for Father's Day last year, and I found this picture. I'm and I'm 11 months in the picture. It's noted on the photograph, and I'm holding a bear sign, and he's actually tipping back the bear sign. So I thought, well, maybe that was my first drink. I don't know. <laughs> Um, I believe my father was an alcoholic. Uh, we don't say whether people are or not, but if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, honey, it's a duck. And I'm um, pretty sure he was. And um, there was always alcohol in my life. I just always remember stuff like that. I was always drinking alcohol, even as a young kid. But um, when I was six years old, my dad died of cancer, and I was left with my mom. And at that time, I thought I was an only child. I was raised as an only child. I'll say that. I'll get I'll get to more of that later. But so I was, it was my mom and I, and um, my mom, I only know this in hindsight, really had no skills for living when my dad died. Um, she was in her mid-40s, and she didn't know how to drive. 
she hadn't worked, and um, and when my dad died, we had nothing, and, and she had to work three jobs to, to keep a roof over our head and keep food on the table. Um, but that didn't seem to be enough for this girl. Um, I just really saw that she wasn't available. Well, no, she was at work at three jobs, but when she was home, she was sitting in her reclining chair in front of the TV and smoking more menthols, and I just got a lot of, not now, Georgie! Ugh. You know that feeling you get when you're around somebody and you just know they don't like you? That's the feeling I had at home. And um, and I, I just always remember one of the my earliest feelings, and we identify this as, as alcoholics, was feeling really lonely. I feel like I was born singing the blues from a very young age. I mean, it was just, everything was really heavy. My emotions were all so heavy, and I always felt so lonely, and I was daddy's little girl, and then when my dad died, I was left with this woman who didn't seem to care for me. I mean, she cared for me in her actions, but the feeling that I explained, you know. So I started hanging out with older kids in the neighborhood and trying to find that connection with anyone. Um, anyone. <laughs> uh, so I started smoking cigarettes when I was 10 years old. I started stealing my mom's car when I was 10. I started dating when I was 10. I had a 16-year-old boyfriend, which today, you know, I look at my friends with kids and I just think, how could that be? But I always felt so much older than I was. I always wanted to really, the only thing I ever aspired to do or to be was to be loved. I thought, if somebody loved me, then I would be okay. And, you know, we talk about that God-sized hole in our gut that, that I just tried to fill with everything. And I've, I've only learned in Alcoholics Anonymous that the only way to fill that is by giving. It's by being of service. Now, getting isn't a bad thing, but the only thing that fills that is giving. And that, that goes into my life today. I mean, that's, that's how it is. If I'm feeling lonely, I have to pick up the phone. I have to take the action. But back then, I was filling it with all sorts of other things. And so, like I said, I started drinking really young. I was hanging out with older kids. Um, I was arrested for drinking in public when I was 11, and, you know, today, I, sometimes I'll still fantasize about drinking and think, that sounds good, and because of things like Sex in the City, which is one of my favorite shows ever, and um, I still watch, I'll watch as many reruns as, as possible, and I, whatever, whatever you may think of that, it doesn't matter, that's where, I, that's how I roll. So... I watched these, these girls in their fabulous dresses drinking these drinks I've never had. I've never had a Cosmopolitan or these flavored vodkas. And I think, oh, wouldn't that be lovely? Oh, yes, that would be lovely. And I would drink <laughs> with my friends. And we'd be dressed in lovely clothes and we'd be laughing. <laughs> but the way that I drink is with a funnel and a hose. This, that never happens. And the feeling that I would think that that could possibly happen now is crazy. And that's my alcoholism. If my drinking would be more like um, Animal House. Like if I, that would have to be my fantasy. Or maybe in the later days, you know, maybe leaving Las Vegas, you know, something darker. But this <laughs> never happened. Um, when I was in elementary school, I was about the height I am now, which is 5'7", so maybe 5'4", 5'5". Um, Boys develop a lot slower, so they were all little, little miniature guys, and I was huge. And so um, the kids at school came up with a nickname for me, and it was uh, BFU, and that stood for Big, Fat, and Ugly. And that's what the kids called me. I know. See? <laughs> and um, I still, you know, that, that old idea, it's really hard to shake. That's just so, it's so in, it's so in me still. And um, 
In junior high, the kids came up with another nickname for me based on the size of my lips, which I will not repeat tonight, but people pay to have it done now, so whatever. <laughs> I actually saw one of my, my best friend, Adrian, at that time. Her brother was the hottest boy in school. Oh, he was so gorgeous. And I would go to her house just in the hopes he might walk through the living room. And I was sitting next to her on the couch, and she was a petite, sweet little thing, and all the boys liked her. And then there's me, you know. And I'm sitting next to her, and he walked in, and he looked at us, and he looked at me, and he goes, Oh, my God, you're such an ogre. I know, see? Maybe, maybe, maybe I am a victim. But, so that's how I felt about myself. Um, I, I heard these messages coming in, and when all I wanted was to be loved, and I was getting these messages, it was, it was hurting me very much. And so what I decided I needed to do was to take my life. And so that was another thing I started at a very young age. At, at 12 years old, I found this medication that said, do not exceed 12 in 24 hours. So I took 13. <laughs> and I waited. And nothing happened. And then um, when I was in junior high, um, I, I, I took a bunch of uppers and downers at the same time, and I thought this time would do it. And I went to sleep for the big sleep. And, um, and I woke up, and I just itched from head to toe. So I, I learned that you can't really mix uppers and downers. That was what I learned from that experience. I did have one last suicide attempt in my early 20s, but, um, but I kind of put that on hold for a while and just continued to drink and, and try and, and find somebody who would love me, and, and that was men. You know, I always had older boyfriends. Um, I always, my sponsor, Marilyn, says I would attach tick-like to my boyfriends to try and suck their life force out to fill the emptiness within me. And, you know, at the beginning of a relationship, everything's better. You're like, oh, I've never noticed those flowers are so bright and beautiful. And isn't it a beautiful day? And, oh, listen to that song on the radio. Everything's just sweeter and better. And then you get into the, you know, the routine and you're like, well, if he loved me, he would. And you could fill in a thousand things he would do if he loved me. And then I would start looking for the next excitement, the next thing to make me feel better. And so, I, you know, there was a lot of <laughs> overlapping. <laughs> um, <laughs> Another thing I liked was um, I liked my men pre-screened, meaning I liked your men because <laughs> clearly you would pick them, <laughs> so they must not be so awful. So I would um, I would hook up with with your people, and um, but I always felt always felt really, until I got sober and I got to the fourth step in the fourth column, that I was a victim and that I was just so lonely and nobody loved me and I had to do this to get love. I had no choice, you know. And um, you have families. You have people who love you. I don't. And um, I, I was, this is the type of person I was. Uh, one of my best friends at the time, maybe, I think maybe we were 11 or 12, we were at a party and she pointed out this boy that she liked. A boy I'd never noticed in that way. And I thought, oh, yeah, he is kind of cute. And she was madly in love with him or madly in crush with him. And, um, and so I went after him, you know, pre-screened and all. Um, I, I went in, and, um, and we went outside, and, and we started nicking. And she came out and saw us, and she was devastated and started crying. And, and you know, we separated, and I took her aside, and I sat, and I talked to her until she believed that she didn't see what she just saw. That's the kind of friend I was back then. 
I mean, I, I was like, no, you absolutely didn't see that. And because she loved me more than she crushed on him, she believed me. I mean, that's the kind of person I was. Yet when I came here, I thought I was a victim, and I thought I'd only hurt myself. And um, by the time I was 13, I was pregnant. And um, I ended up terminating that pregnancy, which was really – I didn't want to. I don't know what I wanted to do at that age. Um but I didn't want to do that, and my boyfriend and my mom really wanted me to do that, and I did that, and I drank and used over that for a long time, and it wasn't until I got sober, you know, and started working the steps and working with other people that there was, had any peace uh, around that. It's like so many other things, you know, um, they say we won't regret the past or we should shut the door on it, that, you know, these liabilities become assets, and there's kind of a a time, though, even in sobriety now where I do feel regret about things until I can use that experience to either help someone else or to change, to help change something I'm doing currently, you know. So I came here with a lot of regret. And um, my relationship with my mom, um, I ran wild. I did whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. I was never grounded. She got to a point where she just thought, I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyway, and she'd rather have me do it at home. So she would buy me booze. She would come back from the store with cases of beer and say, oh, sweetie, Meisterbrow was on sale today, so I got you a couple cases. And Meisterbrow is a horrible beer, but it's really cheap. And um, so she'd get me that, or she'd buy cakes for parties sometimes. Um, if, you know, she'd work all day, and then she'd be grumpy and smoking in front of the TV, and a friend would knock at the door, and she'd say, who's that scratching at the door? She was the scariest lady in the neighborhood. And my friend is Georgia home? And she'd say, she's in the opium den, which is what she called my room. Because <laughs> it's always filled with smoke and partying and stuff. But she felt like if I was doing it at home, I was going to do it anyway. Um, so I may as well do it at home. And, um, you know, we didn't, there wasn't hugging going on in my house. There wasn't, you know, mother-daughter deep talks. And, and I know now in hindsight that my mom didn't have those skills to give me. I kept feeling like, she was withholding something from me that she possessed. But what it turned out was that she didn't possess this thing. And I was so angry with her for so long for not giving me something that she didn't even have. Um, you know, that's all through working the steps in AA, lots of years in between, <laughs> lots of pain and anger. And um, so, but, but I always felt really responsible for her and, and loyal to her. And so it was, a, it was really mixed and painful because I loved her and hated her and blamed her and wanted to help her. And um, she had a mom. My mom and my grandma were my only family that I knew of. And, um, and I would have to be with these women, and they would just smoke and drink when they were together. And we, I'd go to see, we'd have to go spend time with my grandma and and she would just tell me what a piece of crap I was and how I ruined my mom's life. And if my dad was alive, he'd be so disappointed in me. And then they'd go in the bar, and I'd have to sit in the car, and I'd sit in the car for hours while they were in the bar. And we'd go to dinner, and I just I hated these women. Um, but through this program, I ended up loving both of those women, which is a miracle. Um, but I always felt a responsibility to them, and so I tried to be as good of a daughter as I could, but I didn't know how to do that, and I didn't know how not to blame them. And so I would run wild and, and really with no regard to how she felt or how what those nights were like when I didn't come home or when I came home so wasted I couldn't talk or when I came home, you know, bawling my eyes out because I was so wasted. I have no idea why I'm crying. And, ah, mommy! You know, all of a sudden now she's mommy. Um, that kind of thing. And... Um, you know, and the boyfriends in and out and all that. And it was just my, 
my teens were a mess. I, uh, and this is when alcohol was still working, by the way. Um, so, anyway, I, I barely made it through school. You know, I, I, I dropped out a couple of times just because I was partying every day. That's what I did. I went to school, hooked up with people. We'd go party, and I never really stayed in school. Sixth grade, I was student body president. Seventh grade, I was dropping out. Eighth grade, I was pregnant. Ninth grade, I dropped out again, and I just kept um, going to summer school or trying to get extra credits to get to the next grade. And um, my mom moved away when I was 17, and I was able to, that my senior year, pull it together and be able to graduate. And I started working full time the Monday after I graduated. Um, I actually started working when I was 14, not to help in the household, but so I had money for my drugs and alcohol. And um, I do want to mention. You know, my, dog, my friend Doug always says, had I known I'd be speaking at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have said no to that joint. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I didn't know, so I said yes. And I said yes to everything that was put in front of me. I was the type of person that you would give me something, and then I would take it, and, and then I would ask, what is it? Because I don't care. I just don't want to feel how I feel. And I believe that my alcoholism gets me wherever I'm weak. It can be food, sex, money, drugs. I'm all, yes. Yes, you know, anything, anything to fill that emptiness. And, and for me, that, that showed up in many areas. And another way was when I was 13, I started starving myself. And then when I was 17, I started throwing up. And I didn't get any recovery from that until I addressed my alcoholism. Until the solution to all of my problems today, work problems, relationship problems, um, any kind of problem, health problems, my solution is I work on my spiritual condition and I work on my AA program. That is the solution. I've tried having different solutions for marriage problems. It, that didn't work. It's this. It's always the same. It's always the same solution. But um, So I didn't get any recovery from that until I addressed my alcoholism. And, um, and I believe still in sobriety that my alcoholism is always looking for a way out. And that's why I have to work a diligent program today so there's no breach in security because it's always looking for a way out. You know, it's... Yeah, let's go spend all your money. Let's go buy some really cute things. <laughs> have five pieces of cake. Yeah, five, five, have five. <laughs> you know? No, no. Because um, I know drinking's not an option, so what is? What can I do? How can I fix? Um, and now that I've brought that up, just keep in mind as I'm telling you my story, I got sober very young, so most of my, well, not most, but a lot of my mistakes I've made in sobriety um, and a lot of my adventures I've had in sobriety. Um, <laughs> so by the end of my, um, well, I ended up getting this really great job um, out of high school, and I worked for a nonprofit organization in Pasadena that had a little to do with the Rose Parade, and it was a really high-stress job, really great job, loved it, but then I started having an affair with my boss. Again, pre-screened, ready to go. Um, he had four children, two who were younger than me, two that were older than me. At that time, I was still living in the house that I grew up in. Um, we were really, really poor. We didn't sometimes didn't have food. Um, I wore the same clothes over and over again, but we always had a house. And, um, and I lived in that house until my mom moved away and a friend of the family moved in, and I had been dating his brother on and off for, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years at that time. And, um, and I, they found out that I was having this affair with my boss, and they, they kicked me out. And so I didn't have anywhere to go, and my mom was powerless over getting them out of the house and just kind of threw her hands up anyway. And so um, I was having it. This is more of the delusion of, of my life. I, I had no idea what I was doing in my life. I, I had no place to live, so this boyfriend, my boss, 
said, well, why don't you come and stay at my house? You know, we have an extra room. So I went and I moved in with his wife and his four children in this room that was about the size of a closet. And I remember, it's almost like a really bad flashback. I remember being in that room and hanging things on the wall. Like, why would I even be hanging things on the wall, first of all, because that just bugs me anyway, to have nail marks. But that's not important right now. But I mean, to stay just for a short period of time, why was that? And I had stuffed animals all over my bed, and I remember him saying, you know, his family was going off for Easter to church, and then we were going off that weekend for a business trip. You know, and like, how is that not messed up, you know, but I just, I couldn't even see it. I was just, you know, my, I'd been kicked out of my house, you know, (laughs) poor me, it's so bizarre, but um, he ended up leaving his wife, and we ended up uh, moving in, and we were together for three years, but my drinking was too much for him, and he was one of the first people, there was a school counselor who once addressed my alcoholism, and he he had brothers who had been in the program, and he, he said, basically, he thought I was an alcoholic. And I'd been to a couple meetings with people that we worked with who needed meetings. I'm so glad to be there for them. <laughs> and, um, but I remember going to this meeting and this guy getting up to the podium and he was like, today was a rotten, stinking day. Work sucked and traffic sucked, but I'm sober. Yeah! And I remember thinking, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Woo! Clearly I'm not that bad, you know. But what I've, I've come to find out is that there's a bottom below, the bottom you know. And <laughs> I'm the type of gal, I hit bottom. I'm like, wait! There's a cellar! Wait! Look! We're not at the bottom, no! So, uh... So I needed, I needed to do more damage before I was willing to see that I indeed needed this program, you know. Um, when things with the, the boss boyfriend um, weren't fixing me anymore and it was time for me to switch to a new boyfriend, um, I was getting more and more tired. I was in my early 20s. I felt older than I do now. I just, I just was tired. I was so, life was hard. I, I wasn't finding anyone to love me really. Um, because you know the kind, you know how I want to be loved? Okay, you know in that moment you find out somebody's been in a car accident or something and you rush to their bedside, you're like, oh my God, I don't know what I would do if, if I lost you. That moment, that's how I want someone to love me every day, every second. <laughs> and they can't do it. It's impossible. And so he couldn't do it. And, um, and so I tried my last suicide attempt. And, um, my roommate had some pain pills, and I took all these pain pills, and I drank a bottle of vodka, and then it occurred to me that nobody was going to find me. And I was like, oopsie. And um, <laughs> so I called Suicide Hotline, and I swear to God, this is a true story. There was no answer. <laughs> so I, um, I called information. I got some other suicide prevention line, and I called that, and I told them what I had taken, and I said, if I go make myself sick, will I be okay? And they said, no, you, you need to call 911. And I said, oh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm okay. That just seems really drastic. He goes, no, call 911 and call me back. And I never called that guy back, so I'm hoping one day to meet him. But um, somewhere, you know, maybe he's one of us. Um, but so I call 911. I'm like, okay, look, so this is what I took. It's not a big deal. This is what I drank. You know, can I just go make myself sick? And they said, no, no, no. We need to send an ambulance. I said, okay, yeah, but you don't need the sirens and the running and, all, you know, don't, it's no, no biggie. You know, I'm going to be okay. So they, they send the ambulance. I hear, woo, woo, and then I hear the running down the hall. 
and in burst the paramedics. And this is another one of those, like I was completely delusional because I feel like a piece of crap. Nobody's going to love me. And then on the other hand, the paramedics walk in and they are hot. <laughs> so I'm like, what's up? <laughs> so I get on the stretcher and they take me in to have my stomach pumped. And um, so I get my stomach pumped and then they fill you with charcoal. So you have the charcoal frown. So I'm like, I mean, really, it's, it's horribly embarrassing and sad, but really funny now. So, as I do, I talk the the psychologist who comes in to see me, because I'm supposed to be put on a 72-hour hold, I talk him into letting me go, you know, that it was just a mistake, blah, 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 and, you know, I'm, we all, we all are really good manipulators. So I get sent home, sleep it off, and then... I realize the paramedic station is right across the street from my apartment. So the next morning I get up and I go over to say hello. And so I go over, I'm like, hey, hi. Yeah, remember me? You took me to the hospital last night. I tried to kill myself. How are you doing? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, but they were very kind and they sent me away. I'm sure they're used to dealing with crazy people every day. So um, my roommate at that time um, had a brother who had a little problem with crack cocaine, but he was better now. Um, but his wife had kicked him out. And um, he wasn't better because he went to a program. He was just better because he didn't have a place to live and he needed a place to live. So he came to live with us. And the thing that I loved most about Danny was that he was crazy about me. And it didn't even matter how I felt about him at all. It just mattered that he was crazy about me. And so Danny and I became a thing, and it turned out he wasn't quite done with that crack pipe. And so he would disappear, and then he'd come back really weird. And I don't know about you, but I don't like being with somebody who has a different buzz than me. So, <laughs> I mean, I want us to be on the same level. So I, I said, I want some. And, um, and that, began, that was the beginning of the end for me. Within six months, I had lost everything. I was... Um, you know, I was, I was really concerned about how I looked. I showered a couple times a day, blow-dried my hair, feathered it, like Sarah, you know. I, I, would, I pressed my jeans. And a lot of this was because I so desperately wanted you to like me. But it's also because of the way I grew up. We were really poor. The house I lived in was the house in the neighborhood. The, the yard's overgrown. Um, and I'll just tell you this one story to describe the house that I grew up in. So my friends were going on vacation, and they asked if we could house with their dog. So the dad comes to the house, he drops off the dog, and he came back five minutes later. He said, I can't do it. I can't leave my dog here. That's how bad my house was. <laughs> so flash forward, it's really, if I have to be, I have to look perfect. I have to be perfect if I'm going to find that one thing in life that I'm looking for, which is someone to love me because then everything will be okay. So, um, so now I'm doing this with Danny and... Personal hygiene isn't a priority when you're, when you're a little crackhead. And, um, and so I started losing everything. I started selling everything I owned. I started pretending not to see that he was selling things of mine that I, my mom had given me or things like that. And, um, and then all of a sudden we're going down to MacArthur Park, which is in a really scary part of L.A., and we're taking a gun and we're going to get drugs. And this is not who I was at all. I I'd had run-ins with drugs during my drinking, but I could always say no. So because it was always alcohol. You know, if things got crazy, I always came back to alcohol. But I was tired. I was tired. I didn't have any more 
spite in me. And so um, I ended up getting evicted from where I lived. I got fired from my job. And Danny sold my car for a piece of crack cocaine about that big, which on the at that time went for about 20 bucks. And I had nothing. And um, and my best friend Diana, we had grown up together in La Crescenta, and she graduated early, moved to San Diego, and was going to college and having a normal life, actually an accelerated life. And I had stayed in La Crescenta and had just been circling the drain. And when this happened, um, she said, you can go live with my parents. They have a room that you can stay in. And so... Um, that last year before I got sober, I went and I lived. I lived there, and I got um, my ex-boyfriend boss helped me buy a car, and I, I paid him off slowly for that, and um, and I just survived for like a year. I'd been to AA. Clearly, that wasn't the place for me. I mean, I told you about that meeting; it was horrible, and um, so I just tried to white knuckle it for about a year, and it was really, really bad. I mean, there were so many times I could have qualified for this program. But it wasn't until I'd run out of all the answers. You know, I'd been to all the therapists, well-meaning, but I never told them the truth. I'd been, you know, I tried all these things. I'd done all the self-help books. I'd been to the program um, and all of that. And it wasn't until I was I was really done. Um, and I, I'm not sure how this all happened, but Diana had been watching me and just getting worse and worse. And she worked with a guy who was sober. And one day, that guy, who I didn't know, called me and said, my name's Jeff. I work with Diana. And he told me that you have a problem with alcohol. And I said, I do. And he said, I want to give you the number of a woman to call an AA. And I said, okay. And I wrote down her, her name and number. It was Pat Y, Pat Yo. And um, I tell you her last name because I, I was imagining that I was going to go to this this nice oriental couple's house and go to a meeting if you know Pat she's not oriental so just a bit like you wanted me to have red hair I was just sure um anyway so I wrote down Pat's name and number and um and for whatever reason I was done I called Pat and she said come to my house my husband and I are going to a meeting you can come with us and I went to their house and today to this day, it blows me away that a stranger called me, gave me the number of another stranger who took me to a room full of strangers, and I've been sober ever since. I mean, I get goosebumps every time I think about that. Like, how, how many things had to line up for that to happen? You know, I had to be completely surrendered, completely out of ideas, completely willing to do anything, and that's exactly where I was. And I don't know how many times that would ever happen again. So I do not take my sobriety lightly. I do not take it for granted. Um, so I, I went to this this meeting, and they took me to the big Wednesday night Pacific group meeting. And uh, it was a little bit different than the other meetings I'd been to. It was more like this, you know, like our meeting is about this big, you know, and there's the lights on in everyone's eyes, and they're laughing, and I'm thinking sober and happy at the same time. I don't get it. And, um, <laughs> but I felt a little bit of hope that night, you know, and they said the Lord's Prayer, and I wasn't brought up with any religion. I didn't know the Lord's Prayer, and I felt, I felt ashamed about that, but, but I felt that there was something greater here and, and pass it I'll be your sponsor until you find one and um and so I started looking for one I didn't even know I could keep her so she was my sponsor for my first 30 days and um she was really basic she just wanted me to get to meetings you know and and I what about commitments what about Lisa? just get to meetings for the first week just get to a meeting you know I started doing that and I, I was I was really given this program so so perfect for me um you know I think that that's we're we're always given the right people at the right time and um, I don't know about you, but I got sober, and I'm thinking, well, now that I'm sober, I'm going to go on a diet, I'm going to get in shape, I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to get a great job, I should get an education. Um, ooh, and it's time for a relationship. And uh, <laughs> my sponsor said, no, 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 no. Okay, first of all, 
I kept hearing about this thing, your first year foundation, that the rest of your sobriety is going to rely on this first year foundation. You've really got to make sure that that's good. And so anything you want to put into a relationship, put that into AA. Anything you want to put into going into school, put that into getting your steps done. Um, get a little job to go to in between meetings. For God's sake, don't quit smoking and no relationship. I don't even know how to function that way, so this is all new. Um, but at first I thought, well, I'll try this for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And then finally I said, I'll do this one-year thing. And then when it doesn't work, you know, I can go back to my glamorous life. And, um, <laughs> but so far I haven't been able to say that. And so I started doing these things, you know, going to meetings. I started getting commitments. And I was about two weeks sober, and a family friend came forward um, and told me a bunch of secrets that my mom and grandma had been keeping from me. And... Um, and I wrote them all down, and the old me would have gone straight to my mom and been like, you liar, you you know, ugly, ugly. But instead, I went to Pat, and Pat said, it's really good you have those all written down. You're going to want to keep those for later, but for right now, <laughs> but for right now, I want you to work on being a good daughter and granddaughter. And I thought, well, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. And so we came up with a formula, and that was that I would call once a week, I'd write once a week, and I'd visit as often as I could. If I did those things, I would know that I was being a good daughter. Now, up until that point, I would call my mom and grandma. They don't believe in calling me. So I would call them, and I would say, I don't know. I don't have any money to pay the bills. I don't have any place to live. I don't know what I'm going to do. Okay, bye. And then I wouldn't call for months. That's, that's kind of how our communication was. Um, so that's how it had been up until then. So when I started calling once a week, I still got a lot of, like, we haven't heard from you in so long. Is everything okay? You know, that kind of thing. And, but soon there was a calmness that started happening. And just in this being consistent, amazing things started happening. Consistency is amazing. Trust started being built. Um, uh, they started feeling safer. They, I mean, I started feeling better. I mean, just so many things came out of that. But So I started practicing that, and I was sending a card once a week, and at first I would just write, Love, Georgia. And then I started hearing about how you guys were writing about your adventures in sobriety. But I felt guilty, partly, because my mom and grandma were now in dueling reclining chairs in front of the TV with their more mental, talking about the dirty, rotten bastards in the world and how they're getting screwed now. And so I felt a little bit guilty about what was happening with my life, which was I had a sponsor, and I was starting to have a fellowship around me. I was starting to have tools for living that I never had before. I had hope uh, for the first time ever. And so at first I, I didn't want to write too much, but then I started writing more and more. And each week I would send a card and then I would call. And and um, I don't know how long into this, months into this, you know, I thought they're probably keeping those cards, treasuring them, rereading them from time to time, you know, on a cold winter's night, taking them out and reading them. <laughs> and now look at what Georgie's doing. <laughs> But no, that wasn't what was happening. I called my mom, and I said, hi, Mom. And she said, well, we got your card. And I said, oh, I'm so glad. And she said, yeah, but Grandma's been having to wipe them out to reuse them. Can you start writing them in pencil? <laughs> yeah. So, but I'll tell you, at that time, I said okay. And the reason I said okay was for the reasons that I told you, that I, all of a sudden I had all of these tools that I didn't have before, and they still had the same thing. They're dueling reclining chairs, broken hearts, and more menthols. And, um, you know, for me to come at them with anything but love is like me coming at them with an Uzi and them shooting back with a water pistol. 
you know, it's like nothing. Um, and I tell this to the girls that I sponsor, you know, he with the most tools has the most responsibility, and it may not be fair, but it's the truth, and the sooner you accept that, the easier it is. And um, and I share this with you because, I mean, I, had a, I ended up having a relationship with them, and they didn't believe that they should ever call me. And I mean this to the degree that they would say, well, we wanted to wish you a happy birthday, but you didn't call. Like that. And I'm telling you that even with all of that going on, I still ended up having a really great relationship with them because of the actions that I took. Because the actions of loving them actually made me love them. It's the action always comes before the feeling, you know. And so I was taking these actions of loving. And whether or not they were feeling the same thing, in doing that, I was experiencing love. And love is love. And I'm not going to go too deep into that. But it's love is love. Um, so it works. Um, so I'm, I'm sending these cards. And obviously I went out of order in the steps there just because it was a living amends I had to start doing. But I started going through the steps with my sponsor I got when I was 30 days. I got Tracy J as a sponsor. And she was closer in sobriety. And she was really fun and did everything. And I just, it looked really good. And I thought, oh, I want what she has. And so I started following her around and, and went through the steps. And, and you know, the, the first one was easy for me. I, I, I had admitted I was an alcoholic, but the God stuff was really hard, and I'd never been raised with any religion, and she said, well, do you believe I believe? And I said, I do, and I kind of felt sorry for her, you know, and um, <laughs> she said, well, I want you to pray to my God, and I said, okay, so in the morning, I would say, my sponsor says I'm supposed to ask you to help keep me sober, and then at the end of the day, I'd say, my sponsor's supposed to say, I'm supposed to say thank you for keeping me sober. And then in the meantime, she wanted me to keep a book of God shots, which I called coincidences because God shots was like, you know, <laughs> icky. So I started keeping this book of God shots and, and taking these actions and going to meetings and, you know, doing the stuff that I was asked to do. And I don't know when it changed from me praying to her God to me just praying. I don't know when it changed, but it did change. And it's like so many other things. I'll be experiencing something and I'll be talking to someone and I'll say, oh, yeah, I used to feel that way. And I'll think, I used to feel, when did I stop feeling that way? And so many things get resolved because I'm just doing what I talked about earlier, the solution. I just say, I work on my alcoholism, I work on my program, my spiritual condition for today. And if I do that, everything else seems to fall into place. It's when I start trying to, you know, do all that other stuff that I get into trouble. Um, so I... I did that inventory with with my sponsor, and, um, you know, at first I, I didn't think, I was so happy to be sober. First of all, I was one of those annoying newcomers, don't know if you have them here, but I was super happy all the time. And I heard from old timers that I was completely annoying, but it was, I had never had any hope. I had never um, thought a girl like me could have a good life. I really didn't. And... Um, and I'd never had any structure. I never sat down to eat at a, at a certain time. I never went to work or school at any certain time. And so I'd never had any structure. And in the past, I, start, I thought structure was like a man trying to keep you down. You know, people over 30 who don't understand. And, um, but what I've come to find out is the more structure I have in my life, the more safe I feel, the more creative I am, the more time I have. It's like the more I do the things I'm supposed to do, it's almost like time bends. The more I'm doing, it seems the more I can do and the more energy I have to do those things. And and, um, and so getting that kind of structure in my life, my life started getting better right away. So I was really happy. And so I didn't really feel like I had any resentments. And, and uh, she said, write down your resentments. I'm like, I don't have any. And she said, well, I want you to write down everyone you've been ever been angry at. And I was like, oh, I've been angry a lot. So I had a 100-page inventory of people. 
And I love that. I got to write all the things they did to me. And then she talked to me about that fourth column. <laughs> and, um, and really, that is what sets us free, you know, realizing that I have a part in everything. And, you know, those things like when I was a child and I was abused or neglected or whatever. What is my part there? Really, what is it? And it's how I use it now. How have I used it to limit my ability to be of service to my God and to my fellows, you know, how do I, how have I used it now? That is what my part is. So there's always a part, and I love that. Um, and then, you know, the, the uh, character defects, same thing. We looked at the character defects, I'm like, I don't really have any, I guess, I guess I'm a perfectionist, because I think that's really good, and I still am one, but some people think it's not, so I was like, well, I guess I'm a perfectionist. And <laughs> she said, no, you're actually... All of these things, too. And, uh, <laughs> I said, oh. <laughs> so, um, work three, six, and seven got to the amends steps um, and started going out making amends. There were a lot that I just had to say I'm sorry. There were financial amends. I had to show up for a warrant. And I didn't do that until I was almost two years sober. Marilyn was my sponsor at that time. And I said, you know, I've got to speak on a panel. And I, I was going to go in that day. She was no wait to speak on the panel. Go in the next. Well, actually, she said, wait to go after the panel and take a toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I showed up for that warrant. I was scared to death. And they made reasonable arrangements with me and did not put me in jail. But it was a really old warrant. I owed thousands of dollars, and they let me pay hundreds. To, to get excused from that. And there were embarrassing, you know, amends to make all sorts, but really it comes back to that living amends was really the hardest, I think, of my sobriety. And um, I think I was, yeah, I was a little over a year sober, and I got a, a package in the mail from my mom with a card that said, My sweet girl, you bring joy to my life. Thank you for giving me a Mother's Day. And I thought, <laughs> well, first of all, my mom feeling joy. What's up with that? Um, number two, me having any part of that. And I knew that there was something really, really big happening here. And um, she never asked me my sobriety date until, well, not never. She did not ask me my sobriety date until I was almost three years sober or a little over three years sober. Before that, she just always said, well, everybody needs a crutch. I'm glad you have a crutch. But, um, but it took a long time. And, and, you know, I hear people saying, you know, I've been trying to make amends to my family, and they're not having any of it. And I say, well, how long has it been? And they say, well, you know, three months, four months. <laughs> it took years to screw it up. It took years of just really being consistent and um, to, to start rebuilding that. And, and she asked me when I was three years sober what my sobriety date was and, um, and really started seeing the impact of this program. And, um, you know, I, I continued with the cards and letters, and, and one time I slipped one through in pen. I swear I didn't do it on purpose. Psychologists might, you know, disagree. But um, but they mentioned it. And now I'm a few years sober. We're into this, you know. I mean, you're getting one of these a week, lady, is what I'm thinking. And um, I this time I went to my sponsor, and I said, I can't believe that they brought up that I sent one of those cards in pen. And Marilyn said, oh. You made a wonderful amends to your mother and grandmother, and you don't owe them anything else. And I went, yeah. And she said, however, <laughs> I think it would be a wonderful spiritual exercise if you continue to do so. And so I did. And so until both of them had gone, they 
got those cars and a call once a week. And I did not tell them that I was going to do it. I was always going around telling everyone my intentions. My intentions don't matter. I've learned that, you know, what your actions speak so loudly I can't hear what you're saying. So I try and let my actions speak. If there's something I want to do, I don't go tell you I'm going to do it. I do it. Um, and so my relationship with them was, was getting better. And um, just backing up a little bit, you know, I, 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 my sponsor had asked me not to get into a relationship for my first year. And um, in our group, when you, um, when you turn one, we have a watch for you. We count down at midnight the night before you turn one and sing happy birthday. It's, it's a really sweet thing. And so at 1 a.m., I consummated a relationship with someone I've been chasing around the room. So I waited until I had a year and an hour. <laughs> You've got to be really, really specific with me. Um, <laughs> so um, when I was a year and ten days, we got engaged. You know, we wanted to wait. <laughs> I joke, but really we did. It's true. Um, and we got married in about six months and, and really... Mark is somebody that is still in my home group. We're still good friends, but we did not stay married. Uh, we were married five years, and really most of those years were some of the best in my sobriety, but I, I just don't think we were meant to be married. But both of us were really connected in our group. We were really connected with our sponsors, and we walked through it, and we kept going to the same meetings, as excruciating as it was. We worked with our sponsors, you know, and today I see him and I'm genuinely happy to see him and, and we laugh and we, you know, that doesn't happen. I don't do relationships well. But so um, um, when we got divorced, I was um, six years sober. And up until that point, I'd, I'd been working a really diligent program because I was so afraid I'd have to go back to living the way I was living. And when I say a diligent programming, kind of robotic. Um, I had a friend say, you're the epitome of everything I hate in the Pacific group. And it's because I really only believed there was one way, and it was this way, and you should do it too. And, <laughs> and so I just was, I, but it was really because I really didn't want to lose my sobriety. And I mean, to the degree I would be driving and I would feel anger come up, and I would pull over, and I would call Marilyn, and I'd say, I have a resentment. And I'd read her my, you know, like a four-column inventory, because I was so fearful that I would have to go back to living that life. And um, today, I, that is not my belief, in case I never get back to that. That is not my belief. I believe it works in all wonderful ways for all different people. Peace be with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but at that time, that wasn't so. And, um, and so when Mark and I split up, I, I kind of went through a kind of a rebellious thing. I got involved with someone right away, which I'm sure comes as a surprise to you all. And um, he was a guy in our group. He was a bad boy, but he was sober, so he was a good boy. So he was a bad boy, but a good boy. And I just knew he was the one. Because I think I still, as much as, even at that time, I didn't think I was doing that. I was still looking for something to, to fix me uh, or just someone to love me, and then I'd be okay. And... Um, so I got involved with this guy, and I was working a great job. I was really involved in AA. I was, you know, my life was 100 miles an hour, 7 a.m. to midnight every day. Yes! Weekends! You know, my program was action, action, action. And then I had to have a second back surgery in sobriety, and there were complications. And I was bedridden for about a year. And so everything came to a screeching halt, and I had to learn a whole new way to work a program. And, um, and you know, some of the most seemingly darkest, times of my sobriety have been some of the most joyous and I've made the, that, those connections that I talked about wanting so desperately 
um, those connections are available at those times. You know, when we're busy in our day-to-day life, you don't really connect with people on that deep and meaningful level. But when you're going through stuff, there's it's real, and you're just you connect at such a gut level, a heart level, and uh, so I, I have this operation. I'm supposed to. It's um, uh, I had a, a spinal fusion. It was supposed to be a six-month recovery, but with this thing that I got, I got something called reflex sympathetic dystrophy, which is a disease of your sympathetic n- nervous system. And my doctor had just diagnosed somebody right before me that he wasn't able to diagnose for a year, and that guy had had some serious damage. But because he diagnosed me right away, I was going to the hospital three times a week for injections in my neck and my spine and IVs in my leg. And the way that it manifested was my left leg had... Um, turned black and blue. I couldn't have anything touch it. Uh, I thought that I had a blood clot, and they rushed me in, and they thought that too, but it turned out I had this freak disease that's been around since the Civil War, but sometimes you don't know about those things until it happens to you, and then you're like, oh, never heard of that. Um, Don't look at pictures on the Internet, (laughs) P.S. So um, I started going through all this treatment. I I couldn't keep my job because I couldn't work. I couldn't drive. I had to sell my car. Um, I had no money. I couldn't color my hair. And I may have explained that I was a little vain, so that was a really big deal. And this boyfriend that I just thought was it said, I would consider a relationship and a commitment with you when you're well, and he dumped me. And at that point, um, I called Marilyn with the last installment of my heartache and told her, and now I got dumped. And at the time, Marilyn was learning to play guitar. So oftentimes when I'd call her, I'd hear blink, blink, blink in the background. And <laughs> so <laughs> I would call her and she would say, um, that sounds like a third step issue. Blink, 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 blink. <laughs> but this time I called her and she said, oh, this sounds like a wonderful country western song. And so she started playing a country chord progression, and she sang my blues. And I laughed so hard, I thought, I, I mean, how could I be laughing? But that's it. It's finding the humor and everything. And um, some of my most difficult and sad moments have been some of my sponsors' greatest. <laughs> But it helps me. It helps me to see that, you know, and to always find humor in things. And it's never that bad. She never, when I call it, it's never that bad. You know, she never says, oh, now this is bad. You know, it's never. And I love that. And um, so during this time, I was taken care of by my group. My mom and grandma were not able to come and see me or to, they just, they just weren't able to. It doesn't even matter why, they just weren't able to. And so it was my home group that took care of me and took me to the hospital three times a week brought meetings to my house, you know, spent that time with me, and I had babysitters every night, and people who I thought, oh, no, I don't want her to come over, you know, I don't know her, or whatever, and they would come over, and I'd get to know these people that I would have never known, and it was such a beautiful time. I just never would have met, I wouldn't have wished for it, but what came out of it was, was wonderful, and at that time, there was a guy in our group named Mike Finch, and he had Lou Gehrig's disease, and um I don't know, like for me, I can pray for a character defect to be removed, but what usually happens is um, an assignment appears. It doesn't just magically get removed. And so I was full of self-pity, and I was so just feeling so useless. And in walked, or rolled, <laughs> this uh, miraculous man who had Lou Gehrig's disease, and he, his disease was fatal. Mine was really painful, and... Um, 
but I was not, I did not have a fatal disease. He did, and he was full of life and love, and he sponsored all these guys, and he would load them up in his van, and he was living in Las Vegas at, at the beginning, and they drive to Wednesday night to our big Pacific group meeting because they loved the meeting and drive back every Wednesday, and then he moved to San Diego, and, I, you know, I knew him all, the, all that time. I knew him from when he was standing at a podium talking to when he was in a wheelchair and, and paralyzed from the neck down, and he was 34 years old, and... Um, and I, I watched him, and, and we became friends. And his wife had also dumped him um, when he was sick. And, you know, as I said, I was dumped as well. And, um, and we became friends, and then we became more than friends. And, um, and we took care of each other, really, during that time. Um, I, uh, he used to always say that he felt like that I was an angel put into his life. But I really feel like it was the other way around because, um, because of what he the love he had for this program and the faith he had and the joy he had, um, I really learned a lot from that and from all the people who were taking care of him. And I ended up moving to San Diego, and I was with him the last six months of his life. And and um, during that time, um, I, I was photographing everything. He let me photograph everything. So I did these three photo journals, and I have pictures of everyone coming to say goodbye, which may sound morbid to you today, but we have these albums that are amazing. And um, he had to get a stomach tube, and we have pictures of him going in and them being replaced. And I used to call him the Make-A-Wish Boy. He went on all these trips, and he threw out a ball at a game, and he went on the set of NYPD Blue, and I'm like, what's next, Make-A-Wish Boy? And but we just laughed about this. But um, I usually don't show this at a mixed meeting, but I'm going to. I don't know why. But um, part, of, part of what I experienced in that relationship with him was I fell in love with him, but I also started to have this kind of love for myself because I didn't know that I had what it took to, to do that, to be with somebody that I knew was going to die. I wouldn't have chosen that. And the day in and the day out of all of the things that you have to do to take care of somebody who can't even move a finger. or I mean, he couldn't even sniff. He didn't have that muscle power. I mean, so imagine just that. But also, you know, many people wondered if things still worked, and they do. And so I'm just I'm sharing this just because I'd never been in a relationship where I was the one who made all of the the – it was all – it was just, I'm used to having somebody take care of me so much, you know, and, and try and make me better. And it was the most unconditional and amazing experience I've ever had. I don't even know how to explain it. I, I shouldn't have brought it up. Clearly, I can't articulate how I'm feeling. <laughs> but, um, but I just never thought that I could do that. And, um, you know, as his, as his disease was progressing, he had to get a feeding tube and my dad, when he was dying, had um, cancer. He had stomach cancer, and they had left a hole in his stomach, and my mom used to put medicine in it through a tube. And um, I was such a daddy's little girl, and I wanted to help so badly. And, and I said, can I hold the tube? You know, and I was holding the tube, but I got freaked out, and I let go, and it sprayed everywhere all over the bathroom. And it was one of those memories that I would just be walking down the street, do, 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 you know, be in my head, and there was nothing I could do about it. Now, is AA going to fix this? You know, I mean, AA, you come to AA and you stop drinking is what I thought. But what I've come to find out is so many other things have an opportunity to be resolved. And in this case, flash forward, I'm with Mike. He has to get a feeding tube. And he says, I want Georgia to feed me. And I'm like, ha, 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 ha. You know, no. And 
So I say, well, it, if, it, if it sprays all over, you have to tell me that'll be okay. And he said, no, that would be really bad. <laughs> and, um, and then I told him what had happened with my dad. And he said, oh, you know, it's going to be okay. Let's just, let's just try it, you know. And so we walked through that, and, and I ended up being the number one feeder and medication giver and all that. And again, it was, it was not only learning to love him, but learning to see that there was something redeemable in me. And, um, and I was able to be there when he died. I was holding one of his hands and his dad was holding another. I mean, I can't imagine a, a better scenario than that. And, um, and like I said, I wouldn't have chosen to love somebody that I knew was going to die, but it felt like there was no choice. And, um, and I have friends, and um, his dad has been in my life ever since. That was in 1999. And... Um, you know, he still lives on, and, and that's how I met Ken. Ken was uh, coming to the meetings and visiting with Mike and Mike's dad, and, and when Mike actually went into hospice, the room that he died in was, was the room that Ken's son died in, and, um, and he was able to be there for Mike's dad. I mean, and here we are together this week, and it's, it's such a beautiful thing. Well, if you think that's funny. <laughs> so... About a month before Mike died, my, my grandma had died, and I was able to be there, not physically, but in, in, well, actually, I did, I made one trip up there with one of Mike's caregivers, drove me up to see my mom, and, um, but I was able to be there with her like I wasn't when my dad died, and, um, and stay in touch with her and, and look after her a bit, and then Mike died, and then my mom said, I, I really need to see you. Can you come up and see me? And so I, I made the trip up to Cambria where she lived, and, and I was seven years sober now, and I still had those secrets in that little book. I'd never shared those with her because I'd never found it necessary. And she sat down with me, and she told me every secret that was in that book and so many more. There's no way I could have handled any of this earlier. There's just no way. Um, the ones that I had written in the book were that my mom and dad had never been married. You know, my dad had cheated on my mom, that my dad had left me money that my mom had spent. And I thought, oh, she spent all that money. Yeah, look at her wild, crazy life, working three jobs, sitting in front of the TV when she's home. I mean, crazy. But um, but what she told me was much more than that, and that was that um, my family had been involved in racketeering, and um, my mom had been physically and sexually abused uh, from a very young age. My grandma was put out of the house when she was eight. They kept one kid and sent my grandma out to live with another family where she was uh, cleaned their house and was raped by the boys in the house. And I mean, it was just, I mean, I, I'm sorry, I won't go do that. Well. But anyway, so my mom, in turn, when she turned 15, was turned out, and both my mom and grandma were prostitutes. And my mom had had two children uh, that she put up for adoption, and she lived on the streets of Hollywood. And um, my grandma had kicked her out during one of those pregnancies because she thought that her husband had got my mom pregnant and blamed my mom. And I mean, it's just like all of this stuff goes on and on and on. and um, my dad had had a, a kid with one of the neighbors, and I, I mean, it just went on and on and on. It was as if she did an inventory with me. And she had kept all these secrets to herself for about 30 years. Even my grandma and her never discussed this, because this these are things you do not discuss. And But because I'd been consistent all these years, there was this trust between us, and it felt like she just sat down and did her fifth step with me. And had I heard that earlier in sobriety, it would have been about me. It would have been about what does that make me? How could you have lied to me? What about when I was pregnant? Why didn't you tell me? You know, I mean, it was, ooh, me, me, me. But in this case, I listened to her and I said, I am so sorry that all of that happened to you. And I don't think anyone had ever said that to her. 
and um, and I just got to listen and it was almost at once I was so grateful that I'd been sending those cards and making the calls and treating my mom like she was this great mom because it turned out she really was because what she gave me was far greater than she ever had. I just wanted more because I am a more monger. <laughs> and, um, and I started having this mad, crazy love for my mom. Like, just I fell in love with her and I thought, what an amazing woman. And because I'd learned to take my stuff to my sponsor and to my girlfriends in AA, I got to know my mom. And she was funny and she was smart and she was heartbroken and damaged and she was a hoarder like sideways walking through her house and um, I'm a complete clean freak and so that was really difficult for me and Marilyn helped me to walk through that with her and to love her exactly where she is and I got to love her and and she knew every answer on Jeopardy yet she didn't have an education but she was so smart and she was really funny dirtiest jokes first come mom and (laughs) you know and it still was the same I still called and I still sent the cards and um and, you know, our relationship definitely changed. And then um, I moved back to L.A., and uh, and I wasn't willing to do all the stuff I was willing to do when I was new. My health was getting better. But um, but I suffered for a long time because I wasn't willing to do the stuff that I was willing to do when I was new, which is the stuff I have to do all the time, which is work on my spiritual condition, do all the, use all the tools I'm given here, talk to a sponsor, sponsor people, work on my steps, pray, go to meetings, all of those things. And, um, and so I, I, you would think that this experience with have elevated me spiritually, but instead I just got into a horrible depression and sobriety, and, and it was during this time that I thought, yes, it's time for a second marriage, and, um, <laughs> and so that's the one that you know about, Ken. Um, <laughs> um, actually, Mike's dad uh, flew to Maryland and walked me down the aisle when I married Jerome, which was unbelievably meaningful, which when then we split up, I thought, oh, God, can't split up. Mike's dad walked me down the aisle. But, um, you know, we should have never been married again. And I, I, I was still looking on the outside, um, even though I wouldn't have admitted that at the time. I see it now. Hindsight is twenty twenty, And uh, I went through a horrible depression and sobriety, and I got to the point where I wanted to take my life again. But something inside of me said, before you do that, why don't you try going to a whole bunch of meetings and go through the steps again? And if you do that and you still feel like crap, then then you can do it. And so far, the program always works. So um, it worked. And, and going through that process, my husband at the time also went through a similar process, and we were able to, to split. And today we're really good friends. And we talk on the phone. For a while, he would come over on Friday nights to visit our cat. I mean, it was I, like, what is this that we can do this so well? But it's because I learned how to do all of this here. I learned how to live here. I learned how to do everything here. I learned how to make doctor's appointments here. I learned how to love here. I learned how to clean my house. I learned everything I know about life I've learned here. And um, My mom my mom um, got sick. At, uh, Jerome and I got married, and my mom had had lung cancer, and they had taken out a portion of her lung, and she was doing better for about a year. And, um, and the, the cancer had come back, and, and it was in her bones. And so right after we got married, I ended up, going up and taking her to radiation and chemotherapy during the week and then I'd come home on the weekend to get to know my new husband and then I was secretary of a Monday night meeting I'd go back and finally ended up just moving up there and spending the last few months of her life with her and I'd had this training with Mike so I could bring that into this experience with my mom which is amazing how that all happens and I, I got to spend those last days with her and the best story about my mom is she was 75 years old 
the, the cancer had gone from her bones, now it was in her brain, and, and we're at the hospital for yet another test, and she looks at the x-ray technician and she says, this won't affect my ability to bear children, will it? <laughs> and I just thought, <laughs> you know, I would have missed it all. I would have missed it all. She was, so I just never thought I could survive losing her. She is a, if I'd listened to the therapist who said, you need to set boundaries and confront and not be the secret keeper for the van, you know, and all those really aggressive things, if I had followed that, I would have missed it all. But instead, I followed what I learned here, which was love and tolerance, and that it, it, all that matters is my side of the street. What they're doing on their side of the street, none of my business. It, my side of the street is what matters, and the dirtier their side, the cleaner mine needs to be. And, um, you know, my life today is, um, is really good. Uh, I, next to getting sober, um, probably the best thing that happened to me is I started working at the Midnight Mission on um, Skid Row in Los Angeles. I'd been a volunteer there throughout my sobriety on holidays, and then I was out of work a couple years ago. And um, part of my third-step practice is that um, I say yes when somebody asks me to do something, not just in AA, but if my calendar is open, my rule is I say yes which, as a result, I've been on all these incredible adventures and some stuff I really wish I said no to. But, <laughs> um, but during this time I was unemployed, I was saying yes to everything. Hey, I heard the census is hiring. They're paying minimum wage. Why don't you go do that? Okay. <laughs> so, but I did it. And I went and worked for the census, and I learned to use this little computer, and I worked for a few weeks there, and then... A man in the group, his wife was dying, and um, I, I kept saying, what can I do? Do you need anything? And he said, well, I need somebody to manage the website. We have about 100 people. We want to get into the schedule to take her to doctor's appointments and, and bring food and stuff. And I, I know I'm technically challenged. And I said, sure, I'd love to. And then I learned how to manage a website. And then a friend of mine was selling stuff on eBay, and she literally was selling thousands of items. And I had to write, great transaction, thanks. Great transaction. Thanks. I did that for like eight hours a day, and she paid me. <laughs> and um, and uh, one of my old bosses on Facebook posted, hey, my band. I'm an old guy, and I'm in a band. Um, it's going to be playing. Come see me. And I looked at my calendar, and I'm like, please, let the So I went. I went to go see the band. And I'm telling you all of this because... So I'm volunteering at the Midnight Mission because I've learned when I'm busy, you know, it's easier to find a job when you're working. So they offer me a position there. And I go there thinking it's going to be, you know, some secretarial position. I'll start at the bottom. I'm, I'm looking at the typewriter thinking that's probably where I'll be typing memos and the copy of this will be making copies. The phone, that's where I'll be answering all the men's phones. And I'm taking all this thing. And I'm like a madman. I watch a lot of TV. But um, so I go in and they ask me, do you have any experience with websites? And I said, oh, as a matter of fact, I do. And they said, well, we do, sometimes we get donations that we sell on eBay. Do you have any experience with eBay? <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I do. And, um, and then they said, how, how are you at learning new technology? And I said, well, I just had to learn how to use these little computers for the census. I mean, it was, I'm not even kidding, it was crazy. And, um, and then they, they offered me a position that was, actually a really juicy position in uh, public affairs. It wasn't an assistant position, but I was willing to take whatever it was. And, um, and they said, they offered me the job, but they said, we need to speak to somebody that you directly reported to. And I hadn't worked in a few years. I'd been sick and uh, some stuff had happened. And 
and I, there was nobody I was still in touch with except Jay, whose band I just went to see because he sent me an invite on Facebook. So I called him, and he's a producer, and he works 12 hours a day. There's no way I'm going to get through to him, and I said, can you make the call? And he made the call. And this is, this is why you should always say yes. <laughs> but I mean, that's, been, that's kind of what my life is like today. And now I am an old chick in a band. I mean, an 80s band. And I play music with another friend of mine. His name's Ken. And he plays guitar. And we both sing. And we do kumbaya. And we play at a little local restaurant. And we get paid. And we get food. And, um, and I have a sponsor who I love and adore. Um, Many of you know Marilyn, and um, her son uh, committed suicide in December suddenly, and I have watched her walk through this in complete awe. I mean, I watch, I watch what all of you go through, and I just think, how? I, I honest to God don't know how she is breathing in and out, but I watch her, and she goes to her meetings. She's continuing to sponsor all of us and listen to our, what must seem like, ridiculous problems, and... Um, and I love her, and she, she gives me direction that is something like, well, you could do that. Or you could fight for the good! <laughs> and she makes me laugh. And, um, and I, have, I actually have somebody in my life today. I've been in a relationship for a couple of years, and it's very good. I mean, it, it's moving really slow. I've had the U-Haul since the second date, but... Um, <laughs> um, but he's, he's a normie. He says things. We went to a restaurant. I'm not kidding you. He said, which of these beers has the least alcohol? I'd like to slap him. <laughs> Unless you're going to get the one with the most, but he got the one with the least. I, I don't understand. But, um, but because of this program, he gets to see the best of me, and I get to take all my junk to my sponsor and say, is this real? <laughs> is this something I thought? Oh, no, it isn't. Okay. And, then, you know, I go back because I'm always going to need a sponsor because I can never see my whole picture. I'm in the picture. I'm never going to be able to see my picture. So I always need somebody who can, who can see in, and I'm grateful for Marilyn. I'm so grateful for this conference. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs> Georgia. <laughs>